Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. I began this journey of challenging myself to overcome what my natural inclination was, which was really to be shy. So I worked at it. And so now when people look at me and say, I can't believe you were one shy, but it really was a journey to get here. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is Linda Gatsby, class of 92, Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at Scholastic. I'm happy to welcome you, Linda, to the podcast to discuss successfully managing an in-house career. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Because this podcast is oriented around women, you know the drill. I always like to start with this question. What was law school like for you as a woman? Well, I had a fantastic law school experience. Um, Law school was great for me, and I really loved law school, which to those women listening, they may think sounds crazy, but it's actually true. I did really love it. I had great professors. I met the most amazing students who were doing amazing things, um, you know, not just within the law school, but outside of the four walls of the law school um, for others. And I had a lot of great experiences outside of the classroom. So it was a really well-rounded and really enriching experience. So I'm a big NYU law fan. I don't think any young law student would think that sounds crazy. They all love it. Everybody okay, I well, talk that's to. good to hear. Well, I don't know that Well, maybe it's then to. just a couple of years out when they start saying, oh, I don't like it so much anymore, <laughs> the law generally. It's usually about finals time that people start go, what? What was I thinking? What was the meaning of this? Oy. Um, you know me. I'm a little sheepish asking these questions. How has being a woman of color impacted your experience of being a law student? Being a woman of color and being a person of color generally, I think just makes things more interesting. Not just at NYU Law, any, in any educational setting that I've been in, just because our experience is different. There are things that I think we have to deal with as students of color that others don't. And as with anything, if you don't have to directly deal with something, sometimes that means it doesn't exist to you. Mm-hmm. And so that was always a challenge to to try to communicate that things that we may have experienced or things that we were dealing with were actually true and legitimate and that they didn't get swept under the rug. So I think students of color have just an additional burden. I liken it to having an additional class. It's just more work mm-hmm. that we have to do, more things that we have to deal with just in going about the day-to-day experiences and dealing with micro or macro aggressions that, that may occur from peers, from professors. So it's just additional work. Somebody asked me recently about the confluence of gender and race. And of course, I said, you know, I'm sitting here in the seat of white privilege and you and I've talked about this before. I feel very tentative about broaching that topic. Um, but somebody said, wait, which is, which is the heavier load, the gender load or the race load? And I don't know 
that you can answer that question because you've been carrying both loads. But you can speculate, I reckon. In my experience, I would have to say that the race load is the heavier load. Mm-hmm. Just because I think in a lot of the spaces that I've been in, those spaces have gotten used to having women around mm-hmm. earlier um, and there were more women around than there were women of color. So they weren't used to having as many African-American women around or Latino women around or Asian women around. And so it was more difficult. So I think for me, race has been the more challenging one. But when you put them together, it's really a double whammy. Because the fact that I say race is heavier doesn't mean that gender challenges also didn't exist. And so I dealt with both. I think if I look at my career, the area where I think it has manifested itself the most was in the area of salary and compensation. Mm. I've had a couple of experiences where one, I learned I wasn't being paid the same as my peers. How'd you find out? By happenstance, just by a very offhand conversation that ordinarily I would never have had. Because one of the things that makes compensation difficult, particularly for women of color, is that there's some very strongly ingrained cultural um, we don't talk norms about, about not talking about mm-hmm. money. And so this conversation was really outside of the norm of what I would normally do. And I can't remember now exactly how it came up, but it did lead me to learn that my salary wasn't the same as the person I was talking to. And then after doing a couple of discreet inquiries, I realized, yeah, that it really was different. And so I had to address that. And that was you know, on the earlier side of my career. Linda, I'm going to ask you to get specific. When you said you had to address that, did you address it with your supervisor? I did. I addressed it with my supervisor. You went in and said... I went in and said, I just found out that I'm not being paid what I'm supposed to be paid. Mm -hmm. And I want to know why. In a nicer tone of voice (laughs) than I just used. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is essentially what I said. And the initial reaction was... Not surprisingly, I have no idea. I'll have to look into it. Uh And after a couple more conversations, I have to say I never got a very good answer for why. The answer was it must just have been an oversight. Why it happened in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. That never sat well with me because I couldn't understand why that would happen and why it would only happen. To me, but the upshot of it was that I got it fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess part of the moral of my story, of that story to to young women, is to really try to resist that norm of not discussing salary. And I'm not saying that you walk around, you know, sort of shouting from the rooftops what you make or have, you know lunch meetings about it necessarily, but I do think it is important to test Mm -hmm. and just make sure that everything is what it's supposed to be. To speak up, 
to negotiate well to suss it out so i was going to say it gets more complicated as you get more senior so that mm-hmm. was let's just say an error intentional or not intentional right we we don't know but as i got more senior what became more complicated was myself and other women i think still had a hard time being paid what we believed we were worth given the contributions we were making to our organizations Um, and when we would so now we've gotten over the shyness right when we would push back against what we were offered and ask for more and have what you know we believe to be really valid reasons as to why those conversations weren't always very welcome you know we we I certainly got the feeling that I should be happy with (laughs) the compensation that I was getting and that I was fortunate to to be in that position which of course I was but that didn't have anything to do with worth and I found that my male peers especially my white male peers didn't seem to get the same level of pushback when they had similar conversations about wanting, you know, a higher merit increase or wanting a sign-in bonus or wanting, you know, a higher bonus percentage. Those conversations were met with more openness and more of a willingness to have the conversation and see what we could do. Whereas I and many other women that I know always had to push much harder and have two, three, four, five conversations about the topic before we got to where we saw some movement. I've noticed that just generally about sexism in our generation is that it is more nuanced. It's more subtle. And it's there's a, a difference in tonality. It's not so much about being shoved. It's being gently nudged. It's not so much about um, an open warfare. It's just that business of a tone. You should be grateful, Linda, to have this job. And it's just a gentle business of, well, you know, this is as good as we can do. And there is a subtle difference in in tone. So I understand that. Whereas the guys might not meet with that uh, that same kind of feeling when they when they negotiate. It takes ovaries, if I could say that, <laughs> to go in and, and to take that on. Um, much like the race and gender conversation, it adds a layer of courage to the conversation. What can we do when I think about this um, in teaching young women, especially young women, when I think about nurturing young women of color through the ranks? What can we do institutionally? How can we be better? Nothing like landing a hard question on you here. Right. You know, I think the beginning of it is really to ask the questions and have the conversations, right? For this is an area where it's tough, it's complicated, and sometimes there's a reticence to discuss it. But as you well know, you know, no problem is going to get fixed unless we, one, recognize that there's a problem and then begin to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I think sort of getting everyone on the same playing field in terms of knowledge base is really important. So dealing 
with the issue of privilege from from an academic standpoint, I think is important for administrators, faculty, staff, and students. And, you know, what can we do? I think we have experts here, you know, in that in that area. And so I think an intentional sort of academic inquiry into what this is and how it manifests itself in various situations and circumstances would be helpful. So then everybody's sort of dealing from the same knowledge base, at least, mm-hmm. whether people agree or disagree, notwithstanding. And then you can begin to have conversations around, you know, how some of these issues may be manifesting themselves in the law school, particularly in policies or practices, because that's where I think it's really more pernicious. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the one-on-one situations, I think, are almost easier to deal with than the things that are not seen as much, you know, some policy that may be having a disparate impact or, you know, some some process that's having unintended consequences. And those are the areas that I think are worthy of looking at. And, and you get to know about those by actually having conversations right. and talking to to students about challenges that they've encountered and things that made it maybe more difficult for them or where they've experienced these things. And then, you know, administrators who are in a position can look at those processes and policies and change them. Florencia and Julia are both looking at it from two angles, I think, with this Women's Leadership Network. It sounds like exactly the kinds of things that you're recommending. One is the kind of leadership, very practical. How can we develop the skills in these young women to deal with it on a one-on-one basis? And then also the policy, the data, which is very invidious in the in the industry um, and how to deal with it. I had a really interesting situation over the, over the summer. I did one of those DNA tests oh. and found out that in not too many generations past, Uh, I have an ancestor uh, 100% from West Africa and 100% from East Africa. And I thought, I wonder what it would be like if everybody, uh, if every, you know, good old white American uh, (laughs) in the country did this and recognized that we are, in fact, all sisters and brothers and we're all connected and from a race perspective and from a gender perspective, you know, we all rise from homologous tissue. Right. Um, that there's there are some real connections that we have and then start from there and then really look at the roots of the issue from that. I think that that's such a great story. And I think what that does and what's really critical in this area is empathy, right? So you may not have experienced the situation yourself. You may not have ever even seen the situation, but the ability to put yourself in a student's shoes, in this case, who is telling you that they experienced it and just say, okay, I may not understand it, I may not have ever seen it, but if this happened to me, how would I feel? And if, if people are able to do that, then I think they can move to the next step, which is to help that student manage through whatever that you know issue is right in front of them. And then also, so the next step, look and see if there were things that could be done from an institutional standpoint to 
make sure that that doesn't happen again. But empathy is huge in this area. I think empathy is probably the hardest thing to teach. I occasionally work with doctors and they say that no matter how much you talk about empathy, there isn't anything you can do for a doctor to teach them empathy until you put him or her in the bed as a patient and then they learn empathy. And I sometimes wonder if that's, you know, it's like all of a sudden that that's what teaches us empathy is to have some experience of being the other, some experience of being smaller, some experience of being the minority. And I don't know what it's going to take for us to be to to be on the other side. That's a rare moment. So we we dove in, Linda. We got kind of heavy. (laughs) We did. We did. (laughs) So switching gears a little bit, I think of you first and foremost as a uh, big shot labor lawyer. That's really who you are. But your title is vice president. So can you share a little bit about what fueled your pursuit of an in-house counsel role and what your day looks like? I think that would be interesting to our students. Sure. So I think I decided after my second year summer that I wanted to work in-house and That was because I had a couple of experiences where I got to interact with clients and I really liked the relationship that I saw between the in-house counsel and their internal clients. The lawyer was viewed really as a part of the team, as a part of the larger business team and not just the lawyer. And I really liked that. I wanted to be in the mix early on when the deals the decisions were being contemplated and be a part of that discussion and not just be the lawyer who was handling the mess after everything went south. Mm -hmm. And that's really what in-house lawyers get to do. You know, we're part, if you're doing it right, you're part of the business team, you're part of, you know, that leadership group that's looking at business decisions, policies, deals, transactions, whatever it may be, and you get to help define how that's how that's set from the outset and therefore potentially avoid some legal issues on the back end. And even if, you know, those issues do crop up, I think you're just much more well equipped to deal with them when you sort of have this broader picture and history of how this thing came to be. So I like that part. And I also like... You are, by the way, that is what Evan Chesler, one of our trustees, that's how he defines leadership. Mm -hmm. It's just a reframing of what it means to be a lawyer. He says it, it moves from, it's a reframing from I'm just a lawyer to I'm the lawyer. Right. And so it puts you at the center of the deal. Right. And so you basically redefined yourself, it sounds like. It put you at the center of the deal. I think so. I think so. And it helps that I I actually like interacting with lots of different types of people. So I find it personally just much more interesting to be talking to salespeople and IT people and HR people and finance people than just talking to lawyers. To me, that's interesting. You are, in fact, at the center of the deal. (laughs) So that's how I decided I wanted to be in-house. And so I was pretty strategic about my career. I decided when I was here that I was going to go to a big firm because that's sort of entree to 
getting in-house and I wanted to sort of check that box and have it on my resume. But I was very intentional about the fact that I wanted to stay three years. And and I know that's a fairly short period of time and people at the time were like, mm, I don't know that you're gonna be able to go in-house after three years, but okay. But I had a plan. And so part of my plan was very strategically choosing the firm that I went to, uh, the size of the group that I went to, so that I would be able to get the type of work and assignments that I thought would put me in a position to be able to go in-house at a little bit earlier stage of my career. And fortunately for me, that worked out. And so I did leave the firm and went in-house after three years. So having a plan is key. (laughs) Three years, that is a short cycle. So you're saying that just having a plan, being really committed to that plan, you had a possibility that you lived into. I did. I went to, I went to, so I got lots of offers as a second year. And I could have gone to a really big labor and employment practice. At that point, I had honed in on the fact that that's what I wanted to do. But I chose to go to a much smaller practice group in a well-respected firm. But, you know, if you ask New York lawyers sort of what's the top labor and employment group in the city, that wouldn't have been one that they probably would have said in their top, you know, one or two. But for me, I thought it would be good because I did, they had great lawyers, but it was small. And so I knew that I wasn't going to be doing document review and, you know, sort of laboring in the tedium every day because it was a small group. I was going to be able to actually get work. At least that was my thought, but it turned out to be true. And so in my first year, I ended up getting a not-for-profit pro bono client that one of the lawyers was handling. Um, And he brought me in to work with him on a couple of items. And after a little while, he sort of realized that I could probably handle it on my own. And so I became essentially their external general counsel. I They came to me for everything. And that was great experience. I got to do um, arbitrations. I got to appear before the National Labor Relations Board. And I got to negotiate their first collective bargaining agreement for one of their locations. And, you know, the fact that I was able to to do that successfully with that client then made them more comfortable that I could interact with some of the paying clients. And so I got a lot of client interaction very early on. And that was how I was able to to sell myself to an in-house company as having real experience because in-house, they don't have time to train you. You have to sort of come in, hit the ground running and be able to start working. And so it was really important that I was able to demonstrate that I had actually done real work even as a junior lawyer. I love that that pro bono stuff served you so well. It really did. So I have to go back to this idea of a plan. So your plan was professional. So did your plan also cover the scope of your personal life? Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm so relieved. (laughs) You know, it was... It was a little bit hard to plan that part out because I knew what I wanted to do professionally, but I didn't really, hadn't worked in a firm before. And Mm -hmm. people can tell you what it's like, and but you don't really know until you get there. Mm -hmm. So I didn't plan out the personal side quite as much, but that was okay. I caught up down the road and began 
to be a little more strategic on the personal side. But in those early years, it pretty much was about work about and, work. and working my plan. I did having a, a balance and having a social life was always very important to me. And so I tried my best to do that within the constraints of working for a firm. But I, although I didn't have a plan, I did put some intention behind making sure that I spent time with family, that I spent time with friends, and that I stayed involved in things that were important to me. So I like to give back. I like to be involved in my community. And even though I didn't have a lot of time then, I pretty much could only pick one thing that I wanted to do. Um, but, you know, I did that at the time. It was interviewing students for Cornell. Um, I wanted to, you know, sort of re-engage with my alma mater. And I've always just been very passionate about kids. And so that was the one thing that I did, you know, sort of from a philanthropic standpoint. So what's my day like today? It is crazy and eclectic, (laughs) but that's what I love about it. So in addition to the labor and employment work, for which I'm totally responsible for everything at Scholastic. So that involves lots of counseling, lots of training, negotiating their collective bargaining agreements for the unions that we have, and handling internal investigations around discrimination complaints and to the extent that we have something that goes external, either to an administrative agency or to court, then I handle that as well. I also am the primary attorney for a number of divisions of the company. And so that means I handle all of their legal matters. And that's where things get really interesting. So I do a ton of drafting and negotiating of various commercial contracts. And it could be as varied as doing a contract for a forklift, you know, a Caterpillar forklift for a warehouse out in Missouri. Um, It could be helping one of the client groups with... Um, a lease issue and maybe a landlord that's not filling up, you know, fulfilling the responsibilities of the lease, just a wide variety of contracts. I also do a lot of advertising and marketing law. We have a number of divisions of the company that do a lot of contests and promotions in school and in other areas. And so I'm, I'm drafting a lot of contest rules and just advising on the legal ramifications of what we want to do in that space. The education group of Scholastic is also one of my client groups. And so for them, I do a lot of drafting and negotiation and negotiating of school district contracts. And, you know, that could be just for books. It could be for uh, technology materials or it could be for professional development services where we have experts at Scholastic that actually go into the schools and help administrators and teachers learn new pedagogy around the best way to teach early learners or the best way to teach English as a second language learners. And so a variety of contracts in the education space I also get to work on. So my days are different every day and (laughs) not boring, not boring. And, you know, I say it's probably not for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're the type of person who likes routine um, and you like to know that what you're working on is sort of within these four squares. And my best example is like if you're the type of person who 
likes the tax code and likes to know that, you know, whatever issues your clients bring to you are going to go back to this one sort of genesis and you can find the answer there, then you would hate my job (laughs) because it is eclectic and it's different. It's not routine. But for me, that makes it exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like that. I've always seen you as like this huge extrovert, very sociable. You just get your energy from people and all the excitement, uh, all the energy of the buzz. It's true. I do. And that is, that's the Linda you see today. Mm-hmm. But that is not, that is so far from the little girl Linda. Wow. That I can't even tell you. Wow. I was painfully shy as a little girl. And it was probably not until middle school where I had these nuns. I went to Catholic school and they decided that they thought I would be a good public speaker. I have no idea where they got that from because I certainly did not see that in myself. And so they wanted me to join the forensics team. And of course, my initial response was absolutely not. I have no interest in doing that. But they stayed at it. And they worked on me until I guess they finally just wore me down and I decided that I would try it. And so I started, I started practicing doing these, doing extemporaneous speaking. And I ended up making the forensics team and doing public speaking across the city competitively and surprisingly I was actually good at it it is something I would have never thought to do on my own and so I guess you know I always I fondly remember those nuns and I think it's so important that kids have teachers and role models and people who believe in them and see potential in them Mm -hmm. because I would have never done that but they saw that potential and they sort of dragged it out of me Uh, kicking and screaming. And so that was the beginning of me developing confidence and thinking that I actually maybe could speak publicly, which sort of made its way into me thinking that I could be successful as a lawyer. And so those nuns had a tremendous impact on my life. And I sort of took that nugget. And when I went to high school, I decided that I was going to push myself even further and I ran for freshman class president Hmm. because in my mind that would force me to meet and go out and talk to all of these new students so it was sort of like I began this journey of challenging myself to overcome what my natural inclination was which was really to be shy and introverted so I worked at it I won that election um (laughs) And I've just sort of been on a roll ever since in terms of challenging myself. And so now when people look at me and say, I can't believe you were one shy, I get it because I don't present that way now, but it really was a journey to get here. And it's funny, the, the root word of educate is educare, which means to draw forth. Somebody saw something in you and drew it forth. Yep, Sister Elizabeth and Sister Virginia. They drew it forth. Somebody drew it forth from you. 
you must be drawing it forth from other people. Who are you drawing it forth from? I try my best. I spend a lot of my time working with young people. Mm-hmm. Um, I can imagine. And I do it. I do it in a variety of different ways. I do it through having mentees at law school level, at the college level, at the professional level. I mentor young women who come into Scholastic. I think it's really important, and I didn't always have mentors along the way, and so I think it's really important for women, and particularly for women of color, to just have somebody in their corner who's been through it before and who can give them pointers, help them avoid landmines, and just be a sounding board Mm -hmm. sometimes. Sometimes it's not always about solving problems. It's just being a person who can listen. And so I spend a lot of my time doing that. I spend time working on education-related not-for-profit boards because I do truly believe that education is the key. And it certainly was transformative in my life. And there's so many kids who I think have tremendous untapped potential. And, you know, they just need to be in environments where they're around people who can draw it out. They need to be in environments where people expect them to do great, right? So I don't think you do well if you're around people who don't expect you to succeed. As a kid, you sort of play to what the adults around you put out. And so if they're putting out that they don't expect you to do much, then unless you are a rare child, and there are those kids, but they tend to be the exceptions, most people will sit back and just sort of play to those expectations. So I try to work with organizations who try to help change this pernicious education system we have Mm -hmm. that doesn't focus on bringing out the best in all our kids. And so I do that. And then I try to give back to the educational institutions that I think have been so critical in my life. And Mm -hmm. so NYU, of course, is one of those places, and that's why I'm doing this, and that's why I stay very connected and involved with the law school. I'm also really involved with Cornell and have been for over 20 years, and I just recently became a trustee of Cornell, which is sort of a really full circle moment that just happened, and so I'm really happy about that. I think it gives me the opportunity to give back at a much higher level in terms of influencing the policy and decision-making of that great institution. And then I'm still involved with my high school, Stuyvesant, which has its own challenges these days, as do many of the specialized high schools in New York with dealing with the lack of diversity that exists in those schools and that really doesn't reflect the population of the city. And so I work with them to try and work on solutions uh, to that problem. So a lot of outreach, a lot of talking to students at the middle school level and, you know, just letting them know about the school, letting them know that there are alums of color who have gone through the school and giving them a picture of what life can be if you take this road, although it's a much harder road than when I went there because the numbers are really small. And so, you know, it's hard to say to a 12-year-old that you should go to this school where you're going to be <laughs> one true. of one of five in your class or one of four in your class and there are 3,000 students in the school. That's a tough sell 
for a 12-year-old. Very tough um, But we work on that in terms of the outreach and education, and then we also work on some of the policy issues and advocacy with different city stakeholders to try and do some things to you're getting to change into, it. You're getting into Dumbledore territory there. <laughs> <laughs> Dumbledore and Harry Potter. I would say you you are already talking about your your superpower. I can hear your superpower. Can you? Well, from my perspective, I want to hear what you think my superpower is, but <laughs> I'll tell you what what it is for me. I think it's dogged determination. I was going to say tenacity, so okay. we're on the same trail. Yeah, we are. That is it for me. I am nothing if not determined. And I am a planner, so I have a plan. I will strategize around my plan. Mm-hmm. And then I will work the plan and work my butt off to make sure that I accomplish whatever it is that I have put in front of me. Mm-hmm. So my sort of mantra is always when, not if. You had mentioned um, diversity here really briefly, almost in passing, but the topic of diversity inclusion has been amplified in importance recently, terrifyingly actually, particularly given this uh, current political climate. That said, the percentage of women in leadership roles among the Fortune 500 companies has dropped to 4.2% in 2016. What advice can you offer women, particularly, who are in pursuit of leadership roles in business? You're considered senior leadership in business, and don't you love it when you're now considered a senior mentor? I know. I don't feel <laughs> old enough to, to have that designation. Class of 92, Linda, <laughs> come on. Um, now, you you know, I, I've officially ascribed Dumbledore to you. That's, that's dangerous business. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, this is bad. 4.2% in 2016. I, I don't want to say bad, but that's bad. It's not good. It's not good. It's not good. It's not good. That happened. What, what do we do about this? You know, my advice to young women lawyers is primarily, first and foremost, to understand that you have to be responsible for your own career development. You know, gone are the days where you can rely on a company to solely identify you, groom you and move you through this path that's going to get you to senior leadership. They're I think, not going to pick you out of the crowd and no. say, I think the one. You know, that happens for sure, but it happens in much smaller numbers than mm-hmm. it did in the past. So I think you have to be responsible for your own career, which means you have to, you know, you have to think about what you want and then you have to strategize around it. The other advice I give to, to young women is that working hard is just not enough. And a lot of us grew up with our parents telling us that and thinking that, you know, you just keep your head down and work hard and you'll be successful. And I think doing that will get you a certain level of success, but I don't think it gets you to the top. It doesn't get you to being in senior leadership. Relationships will get you to the top. And so women will make the mistake of working hard at the expense of developing relationships. And so I say, you know, you've got to work hard and your work has got to be excellent, but you've got to take the time to get up from your desk and walk around and get outside of legal and meet people and meet them and go to lunch and go to dinner and develop relationships, which means that you have to be somewhat vulnerable 
you have to let people get to know you a little bit in the workplace. And again, going back to some cultural things, you know, I know I certainly grew up, work is work and personal is personal and the two do not mix. And while I think there is a nugget in there that is helpful and you don't want to cross those things too much, I do think people at work have to get to know you because people want to support people that they like Mm -hmm. and people that they know. And if people don't really know anything about you, then it's going to be harder for them to be your advocate. And so for someone to identify you and say that they want to sponsor you in an organization, they really have to know you. I wish I could emboss that in silver and frame it for every student that is going to be the relationships that that will get you to the top. It's true. It's true. No matter how many skills you learn and no matter how much you can get done in private, it's the connections, it's the relationships, it's the capacity for emotional intelligence. Right. That gives you that go-to sense. Yeah. And then I think in tandem with developing those relationships internally, you also need to develop relationships external to your organization. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, you know, you may not be able to find a mentor in your organization, but that doesn't mean that someone external couldn't be a mentor to you and be very helpful in your career progression. So um, it's important to network and as you certainly as you get to your mid-level years, I think it's important to figure out what you're an expert in and then begin to develop that and develop it by beginning to speak on panels, by taking on leadership roles, heading committees of bar associations or other legal organizations so that you, one, you'll be working on your skills your leadership skills more broadly, but also people will begin to see you in a broader way and not just for your technical skills, but also for some other skills. And I think I'll go back to what's really important to me and I think is also helpful in this area is giving back. And so I also think it's important for young women to find something that they're passionate about, an initiative, an organization, and become involved and give back. One, because I think it's the right thing to do. But also, it's also another great opportunity for you to develop skills, again, outside of just those technical legal skills. And to show people how you can lead in a broader way, in a bigger way. And having success and doing impactful work in the community can get you recognized in your day-to-day nine-to-five job and people sometimes underestimate that so I think if young women sort of begin to develop this bigger picture of what leadership looks like not just the working hard but put all of these other pieces together earlier in their career then they're developing this sort of leadership profile and have a leadership toolkit that will enable them to get to the senior ranks I was a huge bookworm and Scholastic was a big influence way back when for me. And I would love nothing more than to pick your brains about books. But because <laughs> this is a podcast and we've got to pay attention to time. So instead of what I'm going to do is cast your brain back to that little young shy self 
before the nuns got a hold of you and said, (laughs) (laughs) we're going to put you on the forensics team. What would that little introverted girl think of you now? I think she would be somewhat shocked Hmm. just because she was so shy. So I don't think she would have imagined that I would be the extrovert that I am and that I would serve on these on all these boards and be a spokesperson for a lot of the organizations that I'm a part of. So I can be a worker bee mm-hmm. and I do that really well. But I think what I do better is lead. And she would be surprised at that. But I also think she'd be really proud because I do come from a family of very strong, very hardworking women. Mm-hmm. And so... I think she would be proud that I sort of lived up to what my family would expect from me in terms of working hard. And she would be proud that I never forgot where I came from. And that as much as people may say, oh, you've reached some level of success, it really doesn't mean much to me if I'm not also helping somebody else. And so the fact that I spend so much of my time outside of work trying to help other people would make her proud. Well, I met you when you were just a few years out of law school. And I know that I'm really proud of you. Thank you. And I really appreciate you for coming here today and talking to our students, talking to me. It's I feel like that your life makes a difference. So thank you, Linda. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I, I hope if, you know, one student takes a nugget from what I've said and is able to be successful, then this will be, this will be worth it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash women's leadership.